You're listening to audio from Shandon Baptist Church. If you'd like to check out more resources from us, please visit our website at shandon.org. So since we're doing a two-part series, for lack of a better word, One Nation Under God, we're going to divide that in two. So tonight we're going to talk about One Nation and what that means. And uh, we'll look at this through a biblical lens and you'll learn a whole lot more, maybe more than you want to know, uh, hopefully by the time we're done. So now I have 26 and a half minutes to get all this in, so buckle up. So if you would, take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This will kind of be our primary text for tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll read together just a moment, verses 17 through 20. So last night, uh, got home and uh, went to spend some time with my 12-year-old son. He'll be 13 next month. He's a seventh grader at Creighton. And uh, he was upstairs working on homework. It was shocking to me. I was so excited. He was doing some homework. And so I decided to settle in nearby and had a book. So while he was studying, I was reading. And, um, and all of a sudden he jumped up and he ran out of the room and I said, Jackson, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to take a shower. And I, I, I looked at the time and it was like 730 and I said, man, it's really, you usually take a shower at night. I said, it's really early to take a shower. Why are you showering so quickly? And he said, dad, he stuck his head back in the room. He said, dad, the democratic debate comes on at eight o'clock and I want to sit down and see it. (laughs) And I said, Why? He said, Dad, it's the best comedy on television. So, <laughs> so um, somebody then texted me during the debate, or during the, uh, yeah, during the debate and said, uh, I, I thought I saw you on the third row. And I said, no, that was not me. I was not in Charleston last night. So, um, well, hey, uh, I don't know if you're going to vote on Saturday. That's up to you. I'm new to Columbia. This is my first presidential election season in South Carolina. So I do a little research to understand we have an open primary, which means that anybody can vote on Saturday, uh, which is good to know. And uh, so whether or not you vote on Saturday, that's between you and the Lord. However, I will say this. It's that season when some of you want to jump up and down and get excited. For others of you, you just want to get nauseous every time you turn on the television because that's what you hear. Well, uh, the goal tonight is not to make you either nauseous or jump up and down, but to give you perhaps a little bit of biblical perspective uh, on this idea that we'll plow into tonight and hopefully finish up next week. One nation under God, of course, comes from our what? Pledge of Allegiance, okay? I actually asked my son, do you know the Pledge of Allegiance? And he said, yeah, Dad, I know it. And I said, quote it to me. And he paused for about 10 seconds and I got nervous. But he finally spit it out. So he does know it. That's good. I know they don't do that very often in school anymore. But what I want to do tonight is take a look at this idea of one nation under God through a biblical lens. And we'll finish this up next week. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. uh, We're going to pick up in verse 17. And this will kind of be a text from which we'll jump into this. This is topical, so it won't be expository. We're not going to unpack this one passage. We'll look at several tonight. Get as far as we can. Of course, you're, you know this passage pretty well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And of course, Paul is talking about our salvation, becoming a new creature. And then he goes on to say, all of this is from God. So he makes it clear that this is uh, not something that man does, it's something that God does. A new creation is something that comes from God. So all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Beautiful passage. And the two things that really stand out in this passage to me are, first of all, that we have been given the ministry or the ministration of reconciliation. That's you and me as believers. Our job, if you will, as followers of Christ, is to administer this message, this gospel of reconciliation. And Paul goes on to call us ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And the word ambassador in this passage is the word presbyteroi. Yes, it's where we get our word presbyterian. But it means to have oversight, to be an elder in your thinking and in your maturity. So whenever you send an ambassador to a foreign country, hopefully you're sending someone with some maturity who can represent you well. Well, that's exactly what Paul says we are as followers of Christ. So what I want to do tonight is look at how Christians have typically responded to the culture in which they live. And so I want to go backwards for about 70 years to a book called Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr. Uh, Richard Niebuhr was a, a theologian, and he wrote this book. And anyone who goes to seminary and studies ethics will typically read this book, Christ and Culture, and it's an interesting book. But he basically says there are five, and I'll put the fifth one up in a minute, there are five responses that Christians historically have had to the culture in which they've lived. The first is they set up uh, an arrangement where it's Christ against culture, and that's where Christians reject the culture altogether in which they live. And Niebuhr goes into great detail, some historical examples of that. But he also says there have been periods of history where Christians, and he calls it Christ, but Christians, uh, he calls it Christ of culture, and that's where the culture is absorbed into Christianity. He also explains and defines Christ above culture, where those two cultures are combined for reasons that uh, typically are to amalgamate into the culture. And then number four, he says there's Christ and culture in paradox. And that's where the culture around the church or culture around Christians then essentially coexist. But the whole point of the book is to get to number five. And Niebuhr says what we should be doing is we should be focusing on Christ transforming culture. And he calls the people who have embraced this and have practiced this conversionist. So he talks about converting the culture to Christ and the operative word in that is, of course, transformation. That's a framework for understanding. So let's fast forward 70 years to where we are today. So Christian responses to our culture today have typically gone in one of two polar opposite directions. Now, these are broad generalizations, so I just want to give you a little framework for understanding that. Here's the first one. The first response is that of the separatists. In other words, believers, Christians who believe in a, have a separatist understanding of their relationship to culture. 
And so their premise is typically this, especially with regard to politics, is how can you love God and talk about politics in the church? That's what the separatist says. So Sunday, this past Sunday, I was out in the lobby area in between services, and I was introduced to a family member of one of our members, and immediately he wanted to start talking to me about politics. And it was kind of funny. And so I chatted it up with him. We had a great time. He was entertained. I was entertained. And I looked at him and said, look at us. We're talking about politics in church. And he said, well, every church should do that. So people have a different understanding. So this is one of the uh, the, the perspectives that Christians have. Well, the separatists, their position is any subject that is political, directly or indirectly, should never be talked about from the pulpit. And the presuppositions begin with this. They typically believe there's a distinction between the secular and the sacred, that there's a clear and hard distinction between the two, therefore they should be kept separate. They also uh, believe there's a distinction between pluralistic and pluralism. And what I mean by that is a pluralistic society means that there can be public debate over ideas and that the truth will ultimately prevail. But there is a safe and good way to debate those ideas in a public setting, but ultimately truth will prevail. Pluralism is essentially the condition that we have today that in a culture that we have that every single truth is equal, and the only thing that you can't tolerate is intolerance. That's pluralism. Silly, I know, but that's the way some people believe And then typically separatists believe that the government is fundamentally corrupt. Now, you may look at some of these and go, well, I kind of feel that way. Well, you probably do. We'll talk about that. On the other side of the equation, you have the activists. They're totally different. Their premise is, how can you love God and not take a stand on political issues from the church? So they're on the other side of the equation there. Some of you have been in some activist churches perhaps in the past. Some of you have been in some churches that really don't mention politics. They don't talk about politics. Uh, But the activist definitely thinks if you love God, then you're going to take a stand on political issues. And their position is the church is a tool in the hands of God used to bring alignment between government and biblical values. That's the job of the church. Their presuppositions are America has a special covenant relationship with God. I'm going to let that one hang in the air for just a second. A couple of giggles. Okay, so thanks for that. Number two, the moral change, or moral change is the primary mandate of the church. Interesting. And number three, the church and the individual have the same calling. We may not touch that this week, but we'll touch it next week. Okay? So that's the typical presupposition of the activists. Now, these are not hard lines. They're just general descriptions of those who are on polar opposites. And the room got really quiet. I can tell. Everybody's kind of going, where's he going to go with this? All right, so here's what we're going to do tonight. First thing we're going to do is look at the Baptist faith and message, which is essentially the doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention because Article 17 is on religious liberty. Now, remember, this is the Baptist faith and message, which was updated in the year 2000. And this is what it says about our interaction as Baptists, as churches, as believers with culture. Church and state should be separate. That's a great beginning, right? Uh, The separation of church and state, that idea, that phrase came from where? Does anybody remember? Not the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution, 
came from Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists in 1802. There exists a wall of separation between the church and the state. Baptists were the ones who were advocating for separation of church and state. They wrote to Jefferson. Jefferson wrote back. And that letter is uh, a, a beautiful piece of work in history where Baptists really changed the understanding of the relationship between church and state. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. Now, do you agree with that? Yes. I have a tentative yes. Well, here's, here's, the only, here's the only pushback I have with that. Yes, in this country and in this culture. But guess what? If you're a Southern Baptist and you read that in Russia, or you read that in Turkey, it, it, the state will not protect So in other words, this particular line in our doctrinal statement among Baptists, I'm not being critical of it, but you can't preach it to a large percentage of the world. At least you can't hold that because the state will not necessarily protect your right to share the gospel. That's why we send missionaries overseas and sometimes we can't tell you where they're going because there is no protection there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So in providing for such freedom, remember this is the Baptist faith and message, providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. We all agree with that. Civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto thereto in all things, not contrary to the revealed will of God. Just like uh, in the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. If there ever comes a point where the two are juxtaposed, we obey God, not man. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. We're going to dig, dig into that over the next, uh, this session and the next. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. It's a solid statement, and the pastor is calling me right now. Look at that. Sorry, I'm going to have to call you back, bro. Um, so there's our Baptist faith and message. Here we go. So let's talk about what we can absolutely confirm biblically, what we know about our relationship to culture and what that means for us as believers. And hopefully this will be helpful to you. A lot of this you're going to go, well, I knew that. But let's just say it out loud. Number one, absolute number one, there are two kingdoms in conflict. (laughs) You knew that from the front row, the hecklers. No, that's good. We know that, right? Well, why do we know that? Yeah, there's definitely good and evil. Well, John 18, 36, Jesus is appearing before Pilate. He's on trial. They have a conversation. You remember what he asked? Are you a king? Trying to press in to find out where his authority comes from. And Jesus says, look, if I wanted to, my workers, my helpers would be fighting for me. But, what does he say? My kingdom is not of this world. So I'm not fighting that battle. I'm fighting a different battle. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world. Interestingly enough, Jesus subjected himself to the authority of Rome, the other kingdom in that day, so much so that he, of course, was executed according to their laws. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You've read that before. There are definitely two kingdoms that exist in conflict. We know that. So let's see where that leads us. Number two, every believer has dual citizenship. You, as a follower of Christ, have dual 
citizenship. Here's why. John 3, 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. Now, all of you were born. Pretty profound, huh? And because of that, you have citizenship somewhere. And it's inextricably linked to where you were born, correct? Anybody born outside the U.S.? Show of hands, anybody? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. So you have citizenship in the country, or did have, unless you renounced it, citizenship in the country in which you were born. But Jesus says you must be born what? Again. Again. So if there's a second birth, that means there's a second citizenship. So every believer has dual citizenship. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. So that's been given to us through the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. And of course, that famous statement from Jesus when he's cornered by the Pharisees, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We as believers have dual citizenship and as a result, we have dual responsibilities because of that. Absolute number three, human governments are ordained by God at least biblically, for one purpose, and that's to restrain evil. To restrain evil. Now, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, is that classic text that a lot of people look at to really define what government is supposed to do from a biblical perspective. So here it is, and let's unpack it. Paul says this. Remember, he's writing to the Christians where? And who's in power? The Romans. Yeah, Caesar. So... He writes to the Christians in Rome, whom he has not yet met, by the way. He says this, let every, and the word person here is the word psyche, which means soul. Let every soul. So this goes deeper than just the superficial part of who we are. Into the soul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And this is an interesting structure on this. He literally says, let every soul that uh, to move themselves under the authority of those that are in authority is literally how it reads. It's interesting. So he says, be subject to the governing authorities. That just makes it easier in English. And he goes on to say, for there's no authority except from God. So all authority flows from God. And those that exist, those authorities that do exist, have been instituted or literally ordered. So what he uses there, they're Ordered. So you get the idea of or, or, uh, organization or first, second, and third layered organization. So they have been instituted by God, which is why the word um, authority means to place yourself under. So there's a word picture there. You place yourself under what has been ordered by God. And then he goes on to say, therefore, whoever resists those authorities resists what God has ordered. Same word as instituted. They're the same word. They're just translated slightly different in the ESV. And those who resist will incur judgment. And this is fascinating. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. The word terror there is the word phobos. It's where we get our word phobia. So here's the interesting thing. Rulers, and therefore rules do not motivate us to do good. So in other words, when I see a speed limit sign and it says 45 miles an hour, I don't immediately and intuitively think, ooh, I want to go do something good. What I think is I ought not drive over 45. Why? So I don't get into trouble. So that's what rules and law do. And we'll wrap up tonight with that in just a minute. So rulers are not... A terror, they're not a motivation to good conduct, 
but to bat. They motivate us by keeping us from doing evil. That's the purpose of government, to restrain evil. Interesting. So what's absolute number four? The church, you already know this, is ordained by God to make disciples. Disciples. So most of you know Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And this is interesting uh, because it opens in verse 18 with the statement that we often overlook when we read the Great Commission. Jesus came to them and said what? All authority. All. Not some. All authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. Same thing that Paul said in Romans 13. He echoes that later, of course, by saying all of this authority has been provided by God. So authority comes from and through God. So all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And as a result of that, I am giving it to you. I am granting you authority to go and make disciples. So he is infusing that authority, but for one purpose and one purpose only, because the only imperative in the Great Commission is not go, it's not baptize, it's not teach, it's make disciples. He literally says, having gone, that's the verb tense, the going is assumed. Because Jesus has already told the disciples, just as the Father have sent me, so now I send you. He's already sent them. So here in the Great Commission, the going is assumed. Having gone, make disciples as you baptize and as you teach. That's how that's translated. Interesting. But all of that flows from God's authority to do what? Make disciples. To make disciples. And then he says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm going to keep going because we're going to run out of time. Um, Abraham Kuyper was uh, prime minister, uh, the Dutch prime minister from 1901 to 1905. What's fascinating about this is that he was also a reformed theologian. He was a theologian and a politician who became the prime minister. Uh, And so he wrote this, which I've always loved this quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Beautiful. Don't you wish the politicians that we interact with today would say such things? Sadly, they do not. Abraham Kuyper, it's probably his most famous quote. Uh, I know some of you are taking pictures. We'll put these notes on the website on something. I'm not sure what we do with this stuff. Sorry, I just put Daniel on the spot. So I do this all the time. Um, All right, so closing thought because we're almost done. Ready? I actually have closing thoughts because I would never have one. I always have lots. Closing thoughts. Uh, Law, as you know, this is a theological idea, law cannot regenerate or transform a human heart. Why? It's not not a spiritual being. Yeah, it's it's external control. The law demands compliance, which is external, and conformity, which is external, and ultimately just declares us guilty. That's all it does. Think about that. That's all law can do. It's just make us feel and look guilty. It's all law does. So what that means is, in relation to this conversation, is government is the custodian of the law. Not the law necessarily of the Old Testament, but the law of the land. It is the custodian of the law that you and I live under in relation to the kingdom of this world, and specifically the kingdom of the United States and South Carolina and Colombia. 
The church, on the other hand, is a custodian of grace. The church is a custodian of grace. And we ought not ever get those two confused. And we'll dig into that next week. Because Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's one of the most powerful verses in the book of Romans. No human being will be justified because of the law. You cannot be good enough. So if you obey all the law, you're still not good enough. You cannot be justified in God's eyes because you obey. So another closing thought. I told you I had more than one. The supreme virtue in a free democratic society is justice. And how do we get to the point of understanding what justice is in our society? Law. Law is the only thing that can take us there. That's it. But the supreme virtue in the kingdom of God, well, it's love. And with love, there are no loopholes. You can loophole a law. That's why I drive 54 in a 45, right? Because I'm thinking nine miles an hour over the speed limit, I'm not going to get a ticket. Don't tell anybody that. But with love, there are no loopholes. You don't get away with it. You don't get around because love, love is the supreme ethic in the kingdom of God, not law. And so that is what we've been empowered to do. And that's how we're ambassadors for Christ. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Now, do you want to come back next week and hear about under God? Yes? Excellent. Well, let's pray, and uh, we'll get those of you who are in choir off to choir. So glad you're here tonight. Thanks for being here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power and beauty of your word. And Lord, you've placed us as Christians in this place, in this season, to make an extraordinary impact, to be ambassadors for you. And Father, you've granted us under the provisions, not of law, but of grace, you have granted us the privilege of administering this idea of reconciliation. So Lord, may we do so in a way that pleases you. And Father, thank you that you have made us citizens of two kingdoms because by doing so, you have granted us eternal life. Not life just in a temporal state, but one that lasts for eternity. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for granting us that through your Son, Jesus, who reconciled us to yourself. And in this, we praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.